Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome to episode three of the Addy Hour. For any of you who are new listeners, happy to have you joining in with this podcast conversation. Really encourage you also to check out our first conversations from the first two episodes. I think you'll really enjoy some of the depth that we were jump, able to jump into in both of those. But for today's episode, really excited to welcome two guests. And we're going to be discussing topics related to stigma, mental health disparities, youth and suicide prevention. So clearly some heavy topics, but some important topics that we need to discuss as well. And I'm really honored to welcome today's two guests. The first is Dr. Alfie Breland Noble. Dr. Alfie is an internationally recognized mental health expert, scientist, author, speaker, and media contributor. She's also the founder of the Acoma Project and the host of the Couched in Color podcast, where she focuses on mental health in BIPOC youth and more generally in marginalized communities and in marginalized youth as well. Uh, one of the things I really admire about Dr. Alfie is her effectiveness and skill in translating complex scientific concepts into everyday language. I think that's a rare commodity, unfortunately, but I'm really thrilled that she's so skilled in that and that she's willing to jump in to today's conversation. So thanks for being here. Of course, my pleasure. Our second guest is uh, Doug Middleton. Doug, I almost gave you a doctor title. I just kind of found <laughs> out. Maybe, maybe I'm speaking that into the future. There you go. <laughs> I'm, a degree, I'm a degree away, so I got a little, right. I got a little work to do. That works. That works. <laughs> uh, Doug is an NFL safety for the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he's also a mental health advocate who is all about action. As the founder of the Dream the Impossible Foundation, Doug has been bringing mental health awareness to communities to high schools, to universities, and specifically to the African-American community. So he's used his platform to really address things like mental health risk factors, to talk about access to mental health services, and he also has a large emphasis on youth development. He's partnered with many different groups, one of which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Doug to the program today. I'm just gonna keep rolling with Appreciate it. it. <laughs> <laughs> we speak those things into the future. Amen. And to be and to be clear, I mean, some of the work that you're doing already is, is so impactful, both of you. So I'm just honored that you're both willing to jump into this conversation. Appreciate you having us. Yeah. So I thought it would also be helpful for our listeners, for any who might not be familiar with you all, just to get to know you a little bit and to just talk about where we are as a society uh, at this moment. Clearly, it's been a challenging few weeks uh, in the country, especially with the tragic shootings in Atlanta. And then, of course, following up with tragic shootings in Boulder. 
Um, and so in a lot of ways, I mean, we're all still going through as a society, a level of loss and mourning around those two issues. And especially whenever there's a mass shooting and all the trauma that can come from that, but all the different emotions that come in tying with that as well. So I thought just to be honest and have people have both of you just share how you're doing right now in the midst of everything that's going on. Um, so Dr. Alfie, we can go ahead and start with you. Okay, sure. Um, so a couple things. One thing I think is a little odd, I'll start there for me in terms of my response. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but I think because I am a black woman, the response that I have had to the two different shootings really centers around this idea of how do we respond to people who commit these acts when these people are of different racial ethnic groups. And so the first thing I heard, first of all, Muslim is not a race, right? Islam is a religion. Um, mm -hmm. And when, to hear people talk about the second shooter in that context, it upset me, number mm -hmm. one. Then number two, I look at uh, the excuses that people made for the white male who shot those mm -hmm. poor people, including mostly Asian women, you know, he was having a bad, like, I literally watched that. And like, it makes me teary just sitting here thinking about it. I was so, I was livid when I watched that. And I think I even tweeted and put it on social media. Like, this is how you describe people. He had a bad day. We all have bad days. All three of us have had bad days. It's never occurred to me to go pick up a gun and shoot somebody because I was having a bad day. So that really hurt me because I, I have uh, close girlfriends who are Asian American. My goddaughter um, is Asian American, Filipino. And, you know, they're just people in my life who I know are deeply impacted by. So it just, I hurt because they hurt. And then on top of all of that, being Black, we still going through it. Like It's mm -hmm. like every day is something else. And we always going through it. So I think it's all of those things together. It's just like the perfect storm of awfulness on top of the pandemic and being stuck in the house. And so all of those things together, it's just made it really heavy. So I've, I've had to work really hard to keep my own mental health in check and keep, you know, just kind of keep myself grounded. So I believe in meditation. I meditated before we even started recording. So that's what it's been for me, just really trying to pay attention to, because, you know, we're healers, all three of mm -hmm. us. The work that we do is in healing. And sometimes when you're a healer, you're giving so much. I think we can forget to take care. we got to heal ourselves too. Yeah. So that's been my thing, trying to pay attention and be attention to that and be mindful of how I need to take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, those are all so important all those pieces. I mean, like you mentioned too, this is not happening in isolation. Everything we've already experienced in the last year. And then, you know, obviously for us as black people, all the things that we experience on a daily basis, trying to walk through. I mean, I think there's a level of empathy that we're able to have in these situations. Not to say that others can't have that too, but just some of those common experiences. And then to see, like you said, how, how some of that can be dismissed and the focus just shifts away from the victims instead of yep. where it needs yeah. to be. So I appreciate your honesty and, and sharing that. What about you, Doug? I think for me, um, one of the things that I've been focused on the most um, over, I mean, really since COVID, um, you know, really started to happen is really controlling what I, you know, what I give myself access to. Um, I think that's that's something I've, I've really focused very hard on because, I mean, you can turn on the news every day and see something, you know, horrible going on in your community. You can see something horrible going on, on the other side of the country. And yes, I'm, you know, I'm mostly affected by, you know, the shootings uh, that's taking place in Colorado and Georgia. Um, but to, to not mention that, I mean, African-Americans have, have, have been suffering a lot this year, um, you know, with COVID. So, you know, I definitely don't agree with any things that's going on in this country. But at the same time, I have to start to control some of the things that I see because 
I mean, it's, it's, it's every day that it's something, you know, it's every day that it's something that's going on, um, that somebody's being killed and that somebody's being hurt. And like you said, as, you know, as healers, you know, it's, it's hard to not want to feel like, you know, we want to do something to change that. Um, I even flash back to um, when George Floyd, um, you know, during, during that incident and how I felt when I was on vacation, um, I was on vacation with my fiance and we like logged on to Twitter and just seen all the videos and stuff. And like, like every time you looked, it was, it was just something there. And it was like, we couldn't even really enjoy our vacation. We really just left and went home because, um, you know, there, we felt like we had to do something, you know, and that moment right there kind of showed me how I have to control the things that I see and how much it impacts my own personal mental health. So, um, for me, I, I see those things and I try to do the best that I can to heal and, and make a difference. Um, but at the same time, there's only so much that I can do. You know, I, I can't go out there and, and, and change uh, gun control policies. I can't go out there and, and change the way people feel about other ethnicities, you know? So it's, it's tough, you know? And, um, you know, I, I think the best thing that I can do is focus on the things that I can change from day to day. Um, I mean, even things as small as, you know, one of my tenants dog died and, and and that was the only thing she had when she moved over here. Um, you know, she had a tough breakup and she moved on the other side of the country after it. And the only thing she's had is her dog for the last 12 years. And people might say, Oh, that's just something small. Well, I mean, that's, that's something huge to her. That's something huge to me. So, you know, um, it's just so much going on. It's, it's, you really have to control what you put into your mind and, and what you, you know, give yourself access to. Yeah, that's so true. And like you said, it's that balancing act too. Because if you're empathetic and being a healer, you still want to be able to reach out. But if your tank's completely empty, then you're not going to be any good for anybody else. So, yeah. And Dr. Alfie, I know you've talked about that too a lot in terms of the same thing that was mentioning, how much we consume. Like, where do we set those boundaries to be informed, but not just be so overwhelmed with it that it just drags us down to a place that we can't heal others. And, and then at the same time, I mean, you know, we're healers, but we also need to be healed. So we're still, both things are happening at the same time. <laughs> It's not like we're always in that place of full healing and going out to help others. We're still, like you said, Doug, kind of going through it ourselves too. So definitely balancing that. Yeah. For me, I know like, you know, if I see too much, like if I, sometimes I try to help, but if I see too much and there's so much going on, I just shut down because it's like, well, is my impact even making a difference? Am I even like, you know, creating change or it's like, it's just so much going on that I'll never be able to help people. So that's kind of why I personally have to filter some of the things that I see because it prevents me from, from shutting down and, and kind of just like going into reserve mode where I realized that there's nothing really I can do. The world's going to be the way it is, you know? Yeah. But what I like about what Doug is saying is as a person who's a mental health advocate, the recognition that you do have to, I, I phrase it as curating your news. So you have to be careful, just like Doug said, I can't say it any better about how much you consume. You also want to be, um, careful about what you consume, right? So I tell people, I still haven't to this day watched the video of George Floyd. And the closest I came was, you know, I was blessed. I had an opportunity to do CNN, like literally, I think it was that week and they showed it. And I like literally wouldn't look, I just didn't look at the screen while they were showing it. Cause I was like, I don't want to see that. And so, cause I know me, I'm anxious. And so that would be stuck in my brain Forever. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then people will say stuff like, yeah, but you ain't woke if you don't, you know, you ain't down for it. I'm like, nah, man, I'm more woke if I take care of myself, because if I take care of myself on the front end, I can have a longer opportunity and more opportunity to go have an impact. But if I'm like 
riddled and like curled up in a ball because I just because of how awful it was and thinking about his little girl and I'm just like all of that like how many people are hurt because of that and it was so senseless like over a a daggone dollar bill or something so I have to be careful about the ways in which I consume it and so I would just add to what Doug said I tell people you can't watch that stuff all the time if you want to be informed sometimes you need to just go to a website and read or pick up, you know, for who, anybody who does use the newspaper, pick up a piece of paper and read, because then you have a little bit more control. But just sitting and watching, I'm with him. I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, that's important. So, I mean, all these topics are so, so critical. And I'm curious how, because both of you have so much work that you do with youth. So if you could actually share a little bit about your journey into that work, and then also talk about some of these principles and how those come together? Like, how do you pass on some of this knowledge to the youth that you're working with? Okay. Um, so such gentlemen, I love it. <laughs> just gentlemen. I just, I just eat it up. I need to get my sunny hand. Like this, I treat women. Um, but I thank you for that, Doug. So the Acoma project, long story short, really came out of a research lab um, that I had. I founded it in 1999 when I was three. I'm just kidding. And so um, when I founded the lab, we were really all about trying to understand how do we encourage black youth specifically. My, I really started, my thing was black kids. And so ACOMA started as the acronym African-American knowledge optimized for mindfully healthy adolescents. So my whole thing was just, what can we do to help our young black kids build their brains, build their, not just resilience, but learn how to take care of themselves emotionally. Because back then that was the nineties, Nobody was talking about it like we talk about it now. It just was not a thing. And as a Black person with my white colleagues, you know, God bless them, but my white colleagues would say things like, well, how is depression or anxiety any different in Black kids than it is in anybody else? And my thing would be, well, you know, we don't have to unpack that a little bit because Black children specifically and other kids of color have to deal with racism and discrimination. So for one, that's a huge difference. Not to mention when you layer on multiple identities like, gender identities or sexual orientation or, you know, whether people are gender conforming or not. And so that was really where we started. How do we get kids into care? At the time, I said, it's not my job to fix what's provided once they get into care, once they get in their bottom in that chair. Now it is some of that too, but it's we got to get them in because they can't benefit from the treatments if nobody's going, right? So that's where we started. Over time, we evolved. And then in 2019, 20 years later, we became a full-fledged 501c3. So I stopped being a traditional academic. Lots of people have heard me tell the story because it was, in my experience, I'm an end of one, it was too restrictive. And so I couldn't do the kinds of things I wanted to do, like name racial trauma as an issue that impacts Black kids and kids of color and study that. And so I said, okay, I got to do something different. So I left traditional academia after 17, 18 years in departments of psychiatry, and we turned ACOMA into a nonprofit. And now what ACOMA is focused on is three things. We raise consciousness, right? So we want to raise people's awareness about these issues of mental health, just like Doug and what he does. We empower people because y'all, we know, we know we look like, and we know how many of us are never going to see a mental health professional. We try to change that but we know as of today, there are many who are never going to go. And so we want people to have tools they can use in the interim. So if they never get in, you know, in your office, Dr. Addy, or if they never get with somebody like Doug who can get them into, you know, direct them to care, 
Um, we want them to be able to do something to take care of themselves. And the most important thing I feel like we do is we work to change the system. We work to shift the system. We want the system to be something, the mental health system in particular, to be a place where Black people and people of color feel welcome. Where when you walk in, if you speak, you know, to God, like I grew up in a very heavily Filipino community in Virginia Beach, Virginia, close to Pharrell Williams and um, Timberland. We all live within like a seven, eight mile radius of each other. Um, and so in that community, the populations that were the biggest that were of color were Filipino, not just Asian, it was Filipinos um, because of the Navy and Black folks. And so, you know, you know, we want to make sure that the system is set up such that if I speak Tagalog, I should be able to find a provider who speaks Tagalog, at least enough to help me do some therapy or who knows enough about different cultures. You can't know everything there is to know about every culture. That's impossible. But you can be open. Right. I can learn how to say salamat and thank you, you know, which is thank you in Tagalog. Or I can learn how to say which is I love you in Tagalog. Um, because that little bit of phrasing is going to let somebody know that I see them. And to me, that's the most important thing. We need systems that allow our people to feel seen, to feel valued, and to feel heard. So that's what we're about at Acoma, and we're all about research and outreach in those areas. Yeah, I love so that. good. Yeah. Um, for me, how I got into this space and, and, and kind of the work that I'm doing, um, you know, one of my best friends will my best friend since the age of six, um, AJ Morrison. We lived on the same street uh, together in Winston-Salem, uh, where I grew up at and, and went to high school together. And, um, you know, as we went to college, uh, our paths began to change a little bit and, and AJ started to suffer from severe depression. Um, during that time, my mom, you know, had, had already had a lot, a lot of history in, in the mental health space. And, and my brother was starting to transition and, and get into that space. Right now he's a behavioral health crisis counselor. Uh, but, you know, there were certain resources that AJ needed uh, that we didn't really have access to, or we really didn't know, you know, what was, what would work for him. And I think that's, you know, just to go off on a tangent real quick, I think that's what, um, what scares people away from, you know, going to see people and get help. It's like, they, they think like the first counselor, the therapist that you see is supposed to work. And sometimes it takes maybe seeing four or five different therapists or counselors before you find some effective therapy. Uh, same as with, you know, medicine. Um, I think that was one of the issues that he had is, is he saw, uh, you know, just a learning lesson from his situation. You know, for me, um, he saw a therapist, you know, he was on Pacific uh, medicine, but that wasn't the correct medicine for him. You know, maybe he had needed to try two or three more things, but at the time we weren't really aware. Um, and, and hence that was, you know, Four years ago, and since that time, I've I've learned a lot more about mental health and and about effective therapy, um, and effective medicine. So, um, uh, since that since that time, uh, a couple months later, fast forward to that, um, AJ suffered a death by suicide, and then I spoke at his funeral and um, spoke about mental health uh, in the African community. Uh, you know, it's all you know, pretty much all African Americans there, um, and. I spoke about, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, trauma, uh, and the things that AJ was going through and how, you know, you can, you know, pair up, you know, therapy and, and going to see somebody and there's, you know, professionals in the space. And I tried to do all that. And immediately after I got out the pulpit, the pastor caught up and he said, hey, like, you know, that all sounds good, but, you know, you just need to pray about it and, and bring all your burdens to the Lord. and and, you know, he, you know, take care of all that. And, and 
that is what really made me get into this, um, get into this space because right after that, there was a ton of people that came up to me and were like, Hey, I'm suffering too. Like I, you know, I need help. Like, you know, what resources are out there? And it's like, you know, in our community, the stigma is so strong. And like, it's even the same way with my grandma, like, you know, how she was raised and, you know, how, you know, as generations were raised, it's like, you know, we look up so much to our pastors and, and religion and, and I'm a big believer in religion. I'm a huge Christian, but I was always taught, you know, from my mom that it's prayer plus therapy or prayer plus. It's not just one, you know, one thing or the other. Like God wouldn't put all these professionals or these experts on this earth if it was just, you know, only something that you could take to God. So um, that's how I kind of got into the mental health space. And then, um, you know, I wanted to just make a difference in the African-American community. And then after I had a few uh, season ending injuries, um, in the NFL, um, I started to experience my own mental health, um, you know, mental health, I guess, I don't know, situations. And um, that's when I really want to focus on student athletes, professional athletes, and helping them empower themselves through uh, careers outside of football, um, you know, being able to feel purposeful, you know, through their transition um, from, you know, the game into whatever that they do next. And um, that's kind of where we are now. Um, you know, what I'm doing, my foundation now is just working with uh, African-American athletes at uh, primarily white institutions and just helping them um, empower themselves and figure out how to leverage the, the environments that they're in um, to lead to success after after they're done playing their sport. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the short spiel. Um, and then, I don't know, it's, I don't want to go too long into it, but that's it. That's so good. Definitely appreciate your passion in that. And I mean, one thing, the theme that kind of cuts across both of what you're talking about is just that theme of being seen, like making sure yeah. one, that people are seen in the first place and that they know what tools are available at their disposal. Because like you said, the prayer, it doesn't remove the prayer, but we also have all these tools that God's provided, all the expertise that we've been able to develop through neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, therapy, social work. There's no need to ignore all that when it's right there um, from us. But Dr. Alfie, your, your point too about, I mean, that could be a whole nother conversation if we talk about where the stigma started and why yeah. we don't access those services. Um, but yeah. all, I mean, all those things are part, part of the conversation. So I, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of both, both the efforts that both of you have done to really make sure that folks are seen and that they know that there are options in that way. Um, just yeah. to elaborate on that a little bit, like what have you seen that's been effective, either one of you, in terms of making sure that people are seen and helping people kind of transition to taking advantage of the resources? One of the things that I use, um, and you know, with a lot of college and you know, high school athletes or you know, professional athletes, is group therapy. Um, group therapy has been a, a very effective um, a method for us. And, and one of the ways that I mean by group therapy, so we'll bring maybe three, four counselors in there, um, and then we'll have everybody sit around and in a circle, and we pretty much just share like, you know, some of the things that, some of the experience that, you know, these athletes may be having on campus. And the crazy thing about it is a lot of these athletes are suffering alone or suffering in silence. And there's so many people that's in the room or their, their colleagues or other athletes that can help them that suffer in the same way. And so that's, that's one thing I've, I really helped them notice is that the fact of like, Hey, like you're suffering, like you need to reach out. Like if you reach out, like chances are like the person across from you or one of your teammates are probably suffering from the same thing. So, um, I mean, it was even things like, Hey, like I'm on the only black student in my class. Hey, like, you know, 
I'm six hours away, you know, from, from home. Hey, I'm like, you know, um, you know, I get all, I'm getting all these looks by, you know, people of the other race on campus. Like, I, I don't know how to even conversate with people of the other race. And, and those things, they, they all, you know, they were all suffering from, from similar experiences. So it was like, you know, once we found a way to connect them and, and really, you know, share the experiences together, um, you know, a year later, they, they've, you know, much improved and a lot of progress. So that's one of the effective ways. And of course, you know, anytime you talk about changing the stigma, it's, it's, you know, people want to identify people that others look up to and that way that you can break down the stigma and and that way that um, people don't see it as something that, you know, oh, you know, these people don't do that. So why would I do it? You know, so um, that's been an effective way. But um, yeah, I, I mean, those are just two points, I would say. Yeah, that's really good. What I what I like about what Doug is sharing is definitely what shows up in the research literature, and that is normalizing it by showing people, reflecting people, giving people mirrors. So when they bring in multiple counselors or they bring in multiple people um, who are of color, right, the, what you're doing is normalizing for these young people. There are people out there who look just like you, right, or look like your cousin and your people in them right, who do this work. And so those people, it's not always a perfect match, but they may be more likely to understand what your individual personalized experiences are because there's universality to this issue with this idea of, let's just keep it real, being Black at a predominantly white institution. I went to three, right? My undergrad is from Howard. So that was heaven for four years. And then they, I dove out there into some of these other spaces and it won't so heavenly, right? It's kind of the opposite. And so even little day-to-day stuff, like we talk about microaggressions, you know, walking, if you're an athlete and everybody knows who you are, that compounds it, right? Because everybody knows who the athletes are, especially if you go to a PWI, like one of my degrees is from Wisconsin. It was like 12 black people there and none of them 12, 10 of them was athletes. And so, you know, and if you weren't an athlete, people assumed you were an athlete because they had no conceptualization that black people can go to college doing something other than, there's nothing wrong with sports. Like I said, my brother played college ball, but that's not the only way that black people go to college. So my spouse, whom I met at Wisconsin, interestingly enough, was there getting a PhD in math. And he's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a heavy dude. And the people are like, yeah, you play for the football team? He was like, no, I'm here getting a PhD in math. And they would look at him. They were like, right, they thought they were getting pranked or something. And so that kind of stuff, you can only have that conversation with somebody who understands what that feels like. So no, I may not, you know, as a mental health professional, understand what it feels like to be an athlete in that space, right? But I do understand what it feels like to be the only Black girl in the class. Right. And anytime a conversation comes up around anything related to race, everybody like this. Exactly. Right. Like I don't have all the answers for everybody. Right. That's, I'm, that's not what I'm here for. And so, you know, he's what he speaks to is this idea of how do you normalize this, this concept of talking to people about what's going on with you. Stop internalizing it and holding on to it and thinking that you have to fix it all by yourself. So I that, and that's in the literature, that's what we have to do with our young people of color. Other things that I find are helpful are also echoing what Doug said, which is people need to see somebody, um, I think young people in particular, who's prominent, who has fame, who, whom they look up to and admire. I think often that helps because it helps young people see not only are they not alone, but your circumstances alone don't dictate whether or not you're struggling with something psychologically, 
right? So having money and fame and fortune and being in the league, that don't protect you from, from mental illness, right? Pe- people struggle. And so I think that's key. I think some of the other things that we found from our research with the coma is it's not just about racial matching. It is about this idea, and I know you know this, Dr. Addy, cultural competence. So if you go see somebody and you feel like they're not even trying to understand who you are, you're going to vote with your feet. You're just going to leave, right? So if you go in, I'm a chocolate girl, and I start talking about light skin, dark skin, and they look like, oh, but I thought all y'all was black. True story. Like, nah, fam, that's not how it works, right? And so I'm going to need you to, like, have a little bit more knowledge about this stuff. And so that's important as well. I think it's also important that we test the interventions that we use, the way that we share, you know, provide psychotherapy. So I heard you speak to Dr. Um, neuroscience, right? So we have neuroscience, we have psychiatry, we have psychology, we have social work, you have nurse practitioners. Having, making sure that what we provide is something that has been evaluated and assessed as relevant for the populations we serve, right? People want to know that, like, we assume people don't have that much knowledge or interest. Sure they do. I want to know what is this stuff you're giving to me? Why are you giving it to me? And how does it help people who look like me? Right. So that's important, too. And then the final thing that I will say, just as an example, there are many others, is finding the spaces where people already are. Again, this is full circle because this goes back to what Doug was saying in the beginning. You bring the care to the people. Don't always ask the people to go to the care because it's stigmatized. So if it's stigmatized, you should assume I ain't trying to come up in there where you at. So if you bring it to me, Maybe I'll look at it a little differently. And so one of the things that we do, um, this book in my background talks about it too. One approach is we do work with churches. So we have to talk with pastors about, please, just, just what you said, Doug. I've heard that myself. Don't get up in that pulpit and say stuff like that. Here's another way you can frame it or just don't say anything about it. If you don't believe in it, don't say anything because people are watching you. And if they hear you as the pastor say, we'll do that. You just need to pray, right? Jesus is your doctor. If they hear you say that, that's what they're going to think. Um, and so that faith-based mental health promotion um, and finding other ways to go where the people are, bring the group therapy to the young people. Those are all super effective ways, I think, to get us into care. I think um, just to add on uh, a couple of points you said, because like I was, I was laughing when you talked about the, uh, the athlete thing, because I mean, you sound like, you speak and sound like you were sitting right in the conversations that I had with you student athletes. It's like, so that was the biggest thing that I had um, when, when I was in college, the biggest issue that I had going to Appalachian State, I think it's like 4% African-American. Uh, there's like, no matter if you got a hoodie on that says you play football or anything at all, like people are going to look at you and say, hey, like, don't you play football? I'm like, how do you even know that? Like, you, you, you can't think of my name. You can't think of anything. But you just think because... I'm a black man on this campus. Like I have to play some type of sport. And, um, you know, that just, that just really stood out because like all the athletes we were talking to, they feel exactly like that. And, um, the cultural competence thing, I think that's a huge point because, um, I did a, a event for Super Bowl with other like NFL athletes and they were talking about mental health and, and somebody coming in and is like, how can, you know, somebody with an, you know, uh, from a different background, a race or ethnicity, um, really, um, I guess be uh, a counselor or a therapist to somebody with a different race and, and what are you looking for? Um, you know, when you reach out, you know, for when you're trying to get help when somebody doesn't look like you. And I think that's a, a great point. Cultural competence is, is being able to understand, um, you know, the issues that, you know, the race may have that, that you may not really 
you know, know much about in the beginning. Yeah. And you can't be afraid of it. Right. So if I if, if the brothers show up, like one of the things that always stood out to me was I remember watching Brandon Marshall's story. Yeah. And then when they got to the part where they showed the person who diagnosed him, it was an older white guy. And I thought to myself, it would have been not there's anything wrong with that, but it would have been so nice for him to have been paired with somebody from his background. Right. To sort of talk him through. This is how what you BPD might show up in somebody who looks like you. Now, I'm not saying the white guy didn't know that I can guess, but I'm not saying he didn't. Um, So I just think it's important that we have a diversity of people available to brothers and sisters so that they have choices. Right. And just like Doug said, if you got to go to three or four people to find that person who's going to understand you and, and, and with whom you have a connection, we need to, we got to keep encouraging people. Keep looking. If that first one don't work, you shopping, like you shopping for some shoes. So you a sneakerhead, you going to keep looking, keep looking and shopping for those providers as well. So I'm just glad he brought that point up though, about with our athletes they need people who look like them too. So we have to press a little bit for some of these professional associations, go find some black and brown people to bring into these teams to help these young people because they need people they can relate to without having to explain everything. Cause that gets tiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're both exactly right. Cause we can't, you can't just have that. You can't have all the onus be on the, the person who's coming to therapy. Like they, they don't need to have to bring they shouldn't be trying to teach the provider about their situation, because especially if someone's struggling, there's already too much too much going on there. So I mean, it's 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 so important in so many ways, and it cuts across everything too. So Dr. Alfie, as you mentioned, so I mean, for me as a neuroscientist, it cuts across that too. How are we asking those questions, and are we taking all those things into consideration, or are we kind of fitting people into one box and saying this is just the way it is? And then even you know, if we're looking at a specific mental health challenge. Are we not even taking into account some of the other factors that could contribute to that? So I think both of these, all the points that you all are raising are so, so vital and important. And a a big piece of that too is just, I I mean, people have said this in other settings too, but when we're trying to help people get access to resources or someone who will care for them, it's a matter of, are those people actually listening to your story or are they just putting you in a box and saying, this is what I think you are dealing with without even hearing where you're coming from? And I mean, that ties into the cultural competency too, but that happens so often. No, that's right. I just, when you said it, the first thing I thought is they see Doug on campus, Appalachian State. We know where Appalachian State is. They're like, yeah, athlete, right? And yeah, he is, but you don't know me like that. You don't know what I'm here for. I could be here getting a PhD in neuroscience, right? Like Dr. Addy. So yeah, and and how othering that is, right? It's not, it's the, that when you make those assumptions, you make people feel like the other because the idea is everybody here looks like if I'm white, everybody here looks like me. So anybody who doesn't look like me, oh, the only way I can conceive of you being here is you have to be an athlete on a scholarship, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I, so that's and that's hurtful because we know internally, as the person on the receiving end, we know that's what people think, right? right? And we don't we don't want to live like that. So that stuff weighs on your psyche in addition to looking around. And as we used to say, my family's from Mississippi, you to fly in the buttermilk. I don't want to be a fly in the buttermilk. That ain't comfortable. That's not fun. Um, so I just, when you said that, Dr. Addy, it just made me think it's that othering piece that I think can be really hard and make it and make it really difficult and challenging for people. I think one thing that's great that you're both doing is you're building community too. I mean, Doug, even when you were talking about the group therapy, like that's giving people community. They're coming out of isolation. Like, oh, that person's dealing with the same thing that I'm dealing with. But if nobody voices it, then no one hears that. And, you know, going back to the neuroscience too, I mean, there's so much evidence about how community actually shapes our brains and makes it easier 
for us to deal with some of these mental health challenges. So, I mean, you're both, you're both tapping into that already. Yeah, we got, we got the science to support it too, I'll take it. Okay, yeah. okay, I feel smart today, thank oh, you. Boy, thank you, I'll on. take I'm, it. I'm learning from both of you too. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I was gonna have you both share a little bit too about what, what have you learned from the young people that you've worked with? Because I know this is a two-way street. I mean, you're bringing obviously a lot of knowledge and information to them, but I, I would imagine that there's things that you take away that they teach you as well. Yeah. So for me, I think it's, it's kind of easy. Uh, a couple things. One is young people are more eager to engage and invest in this space than we give them credit for. Two, they have loads of ideas. If we'll just listen to them um, without judgment, just listen to them, right? Not every idea is going to be perfect, but not every idea we present as adults is perfect for them either. Um, Three, uh, I feel like they're eager to partner if they're asked in the right way. So we kind of talked about that a little bit when we started. If you ask nicely and if you ask and then be quiet and listen, they will talk to you. I think too often what young people, what we've learned from our research is that we as adults will ask, but then as soon as we finish asking, we're answering for them. We don't give them an opportunity to express themselves. So it's this idea of I call it active listening. So first I have to close my mouth, right? And I love to talk. So I have to work on, I just kind of sit on my hands, close my mouth after I ask the question and, and listen. And you're listening, not as you're crafting an answer. You're listening to take in and receive what the young people are saying. Um, so I'm, learn, I'm learning how to listen from them. And then the final thing I would say is I'm learning how to be more unapologetic. I like, if nothing, I'm telling you, the younger millennials and Gen Z ain't apologizing for being black or being brown or being queer or whatever it is. And I have really truly learned to stop apologizing for who I am and just to like own it and inherit it and inhabit it and, and stand in it. And so that's been really powerful for me um, to keep going, right? Because there's so many ways in which, you know, I'm going back to my experiences as an academic, people were like, yeah, but yeah, we yeah, we already know how to treat depression. We already know how to treat anxiety. And I'm thinking, but if you did, we wouldn't have these health disparities. We wouldn't have these differences in who accesses care. We wouldn't have greater attrition or drop-off rates when people are black. If you really knew what you were doing, so clearly you don't have the answers. So what I'm learning is to not apologize for what it is that I want to study. And because these young people don't apologize for who they are. So they teach me in those ways too. So that's not exactly the answer to the question but that is what i'm that's learning from answer. the young people yeah yeah that's it Agafi, that's a great answer because like that's actually the same thing that i'm learning from they're like this generation is so resilient and like i mean if you look i mean i keep going back to this george floyd situation but if you look at all the protests and all everything that was going on and like all this was kind of led by young people those are the ones that, that learn how to strategize and mobilize and, and they know how to, you know, like even, you know, a lot of the African-American students on, on our campus at App State, they had a whole list of demands that they wanted. Like they, I mean, they, they don't, they don't take no for an answer. And uh, I think that's kind of what I'm learning for them is like, like how hard and how passionate um, they will work to get with, you know, what they feel is right and, and how they're not going to accept, you know, the world being the same way that it is. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm learning from yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, in some way, it's humbling too. Because I mean, yeah. to let, I mean, even looking at this podcast, you know, I'm ten plus years into my career. I'm seeing those that are coming up doing stuff like this from the get go, even while yeah. they're still training. 
I yeah. can't imagine. So just, you know, just the level of effort. And like you said, just knowing who they are and saying, we're not going to take no for an answer and really just jumping in and making an impact early on. It's inspiring in a lot of ways. So to pivot just a little bit, cause I know we want to still touch on, cause both of you have you know, done aspects around suicide prevention as well. I mean, obviously that's not, it's not a light topic. It's not an easy topic, but it's again, the same thing where I feel like there's so much stigma associated with it that oftentimes in so many circles, it just doesn't get talked about and it just gets ignored. So people are kind of left to their own, whatever concept they have about it. So I just wanted to ask both of you, you know, like what, what you've seen in terms of trying to move the needle on that and really breaking that stigma so that people can get to a place of really talking about it. And I guess we can start just misconceptions that you've both noticed in your work that people have around suicide and suicide prevention. I guess one thing that I could talk about, this is a quick little shout out. So one of my um, colleagues that's in this space, her name is Fonda Bryant, um, but she uses um, this question, persuade, refer to QPR training. Um, that's a huge thing that she loves to do. And um, it's, rated, it's made it a really easy way to like kind of, um, you know, give people a few steps that that way they can help uh, learn how to prevent suicide. Um, that's, that's one way uh, that I would, you know, some of the education is taking place. And I guess the misconceptions is that I know a lot of, a lot of people think that, you know, when they commit, you know, when they suffer a death by suicide, that the pain is going to end. You know, like that, that is all going to go away and then they'll just be able to start over. And um, that's not really the case. Um, a lot of people think that it's, they, they, they have a, a short-term problem, but they're, they're trying to fix it with a long-term solution. And, and, and I think that's the misconception around it. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of all I really have to say about it because I'm still, I still struggle with uh, trying to find some of the things that I could have done better um, you know, with my best friend's life and, and some of the ways I could have provided him uh, with more steps or, or more uh, access to resources that, that way, you know, suicide wasn't really an option. Mm, yeah, and I know that's not an easy topic. So definitely want to yeah. just acknowledge that and appreciate you being willing to go go to that place as well. Because I think that empowers a lot of people too, just yes. as we continue to break through those misconceptions. And I know that your foundation's like a legacy foundation in a lot of ways for uh, for AJ's life. So Definitely appreciate the way you're continuing to do that. Yeah. How about you, Dr. Uh, Alfie? Yeah. So first I want to just quickly, I meant to do it at the front end, whole space for Doug and the loss of your friend, because that's a lot. Mm. It's a lot to carry. Um, and like Dr. Addy, appreciate you for being vocal and open and taking action to try to do something in his honor. And the other thing I'll say, now this is the auntie. I'm sorry. This is the auntie in me. So it's going to come out. Um, but I think it's important for the survivors, the, the ones who are still here to understand that when a person is determined to complete a suicide, it's difficult for us to stop them. But I think the key is when they're determined, right? Not everybody, not even most people are determined to complete it. Um, I think what people, what I've learned in terms of suicide prevention is that people want to stop the pain. They don't really want to die, right? I, I do not believe that anybody, almost anybody who dies by suicide, that the goal is to die. The goal is to stop the pain. And just like you said, Doug, it's a permanent solution to what often is a temporary problem. But sometimes a temporary goes on too long for people. Um, and they just don't see any other way out. So what I've learned about suicide prevention is that being silent about it, about these are people's experiences, that 
is not helpful, especially for those of us from underserved communities or people of color or black folks in particular. Um, I've also learned that it, it's not a bad thing to talk about it. It's not a bad thing to ask the question. You do not plant the idea in somebody's head when you ask them if they're feeling suicidal, are they having suicidal thoughts? Those are all things that I've learned. I've learned that it's important for us as advocates, as professionals, as loved ones to remember that we can do everything in our power, but we cannot fix people. I tell people that you can't fix other people. The only thing we can do is be present, be available, always let them know that we're there for them, try to find resources and tools to share with them, educate ourselves so that we can become more aware. And I think once we've done all of that, we have to, This is and this is another auntie part, we have to forgive ourselves. I have a really close girlfriend who lost her son to suicide about uh, maybe 25 years ago. Yeah, 24, 25 years ago. And ever since then, she and I have been close partners. We go around and do a lot of advocating internationally. We've been to a couple different places. Um, and she shares her story about losing her son after losing her first husband in a car accident. So she believes that her son's um, suicide was related to complicated grief that he never was able to heal. So when he was six, when he lost his dad and he died by suicide at 15. Um, and so th those are just some of the different things that I've learned about suicide prevention. But I think the most important thing is one of the most important things that I've learned is we still don't know enough about suicide prevention in black communities specifically, because we don't have enough research out there. Now we know anecdotally, we know, you know how to have these conversations in our community. I want nonprofits and funders, like that's part of why we're so invested in research, to go out there and do the work, to give us more ideas about how do we take care of ourselves. And part of that is learning how to understand the relationship between racism, discrimination, all the isms, right, of the phobias that people experience and suicide. When you have the weight of all those things compounding your depression and your anxiety or your trauma, um, I think it can be a really awful, perfect storm that contributes to it. But we just have not spent enough time and invested in this country in getting that knowledge to be able to help people on the, the scale that we would like to. So that's why what Doug, what you do is so critical. Dr. Addy having this podcast is so critical. I know what I do. Again, I'm being unapologetic. Like the young folk, yeah. what I do is so critical because we are the ones who are going to put a spotlight on this and show people, right? So I hope if everybody listens, as people listen to this, Doug, what they hear you say is y'all need to go get some therapists and bring them like App State, all these other white schools, bring them therapists to them kids in, in a safe place for them. Stop asking them to go over to CAPS right. um, or the Counseling Psychological Services. So things like that, that's what we have to do um, to support our young people and to, and to help prevent suicide. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, so many, so many important aspects that you've both brought out and not easy, like I've said several times, but I mean, it's critical because like I said, if we don't talk about it, that's where things sit where they've been. So, I mean, both of what you're doing is really move the conversation forward and move the resources forward. Um, just make sure that people, people know. So, I mean, it goes back to that community in isolation too. And just making sure Dr. Alfie, like you said, that we're present and we're willing to have those conversations. So other question I usually like to, oh, go ahead. I don't know if there's something else you want to, you good? Okay. Um, also just like to ask folks, you know, in the midst of all these challenges too, what, what gives you hope, especially in the work that you're doing with the young people? You've hinted at some of that already, but be curious for both of you to kind of elaborate on that piece too. 
That's easy for me. This right here gives me hope. Mm. Knowing that there are people younger than me who care about this stuff, who are black, mm. black, black, blackity black, who care <laughs> about this stuff. Mm. That gives me hope because we know that we're not alone and there can never be too many of us doing this work. So every new foundation I see, more power to you because mm. that's more of us to do the work to reach more people. Um, me have being able to start the foundation um, and to fundraise the way that we were able to do in the first year. Mm. Um, that gives me hope. And a lot of our funding comes from people who are not black. Um, and so that it gives me hope that other people are paying attention and care and want to help our young people of color, those two things. And then finally, what gives me hope is just young people in general, like just knowing how, again, they just inhabit their own space and they know who they are. And like you said, Dr. Addy, jumping out of undergrad or coming right out of, or being in residency or graduate school, and they're going to start their podcast, or they're going to start their own foundation. That gives me hope because it lets me know that they are not broken, especially our kids of color, by the systems that impact and weigh on them so heavily. Um, so, but the most important thing today that's giving me hope is being able to be here with you too. That just gives me all the hope in the world. And so more power to both of you. Wow. That's mutual. I can tell you that. Yeah, I would, I would say the same points. The things that give me hope is, is just really seeing the progress, um, you know, with the, with the youth, you know, when you come in, um, you spend time with them and then, you know, a year later you see that they're in a better space than they were when you first met them. Um, and now they're ready to, to put some action behind some of the, the feelings and experiences that they have. And um, Dr. Alfie, to, to one of the points that you said, just how many people gravitate towards, um, you know, a cause or um, experience when you may not even know, or they might not even be black or they, you don't even know why they do it, but you know, somewhere down the line, they have made, they have may had a, a friend or experience that they really touched them. And, and that's why um, they want to join on, on, on the cause. So just seeing people share that passion with, you know, with me um, is something that, that really helps and, and gives me hope. And, and, you know, just seeing that things are changing, you know, day by day. And um, you just got to continue to take it one, one day at a time. That's so good. Well, it's, it's going to sound like a cliche, but I know that both of you give a lot of people hope just in the work that you're doing. And to be completely honest, I mean, we talked about this before we jumped on too, but how quickly you both were willing to jump on this podcast too. I mean, personally, that gives me a lot of hope, seeing what you all are doing. And I feel like in some ways, I'm in a place of privilege to be able to bring all these different folks onto this podcast to kind of amplify what you all are already doing. Because I mean, you're already doing the work. This is just, you know, another platform to kind of bring those pieces together. And I think to talk about it in a way that doesn't always get as much quote unquote airplay. So yeah, I'm deeply appreciative to both of you. Thank you. And I think this is going to go, go a long way. I hope our listeners will, uh, will feel that too when they listen to this episode. So any closing pearls of wisdom from either of you? <laughs> you dropped a lot of those already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing I would add is curate your news. Mm. And no, I always want young people to know if you feel like at any moment, nobody cares, that Doug cares, Dr. Addy cares, Dr. Alfie cares, and you are seen, you are valued, and mm. you are heard. We just mm. need you to know that. Mm. You're never alone. That's, that's what I was yep. saying. You're never alone. Yep. There's so many people that care about you and, and just find a good support system to put around you. Mm. Um, you know, that way... Um, you know, if you're ever struggling, if you ever, you know, have a tough day, you know, some people that can recognize that 
you're going through that and, and be there that to help get you through it. Mm, so good. So good. Well, I'm indebted to both of you. Thanks again for jumping on the Addy Hour. This is going to bless a lot of folks and I know these conversations. And, I, and I'm looking forward just to continuing to find the work that you're both doing too. And hopefully you all can connect in your overlapping interests too. I mean, I think there's a lot. Absolutely. Of, it's done. It's done. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.